All right. Yeah, that's that's working now. So um, as Olivia has mentioned, uh, I studied the automation of essential labor like caregiving. This is a really wide and eclectic uh, research area. For So for the purposes of this presentation, I've decided to focus on two complementary pillars of my research. Uh, in part one, automating care, I'll look at a specific case study of the development of a chatbot designed to stand in for a human therapist. Uh, it's based on my own experiences working with a team at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, or CAMH, within Toronto. And for part two, manufacturing crisis, I'll use the chatbot project to anchor a more expansive look at the current technological prerogative to automate caregiving and other essential forms of labor. Uh, this will detail the concept of crisis automation that propels my doctoral research, as well as adjacent questions and challenges. Now I'm going to move directly on to part one, automating care. Uh, as Olivia noted, if you have any questions, uh, we'll be answering them at the end, so just keep plugging them into the YouTube live chat. Um, there's not going to be a break between the two parts, so I'll answer all the questions at the end. So this research is drawn from a co-authored paper entitled Motivational Algorithms of Tracing Taxonomies of Trust in a Counseling Chatbot. It was co-authored by myself, uh, Lydia, uh, Camila Inson, and Matt Rado, my supervisor. Uh, this research was previously presented at the Human Factors in Computing Systems Conference earlier this year, as well as the Society for Social Studies of Science uh, annual general meeting uh, less than a month ago. Uh, if you attended that, you saw that my presentation was interrupted with the fire alarm, so hopefully nothing quite so dramatic will happen this time around, but we'll see. So to give an overview of the project, it examines the development of an artificially intelligent chatbot in intended to help users quit smoking. Uh, the development of this chatbot is undertaken in partnership between UFT and the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Uh, we consulted with uh, CAMH through email and bi-weekly meetings, specifically Jonathan Rose and Peter Selby and their team of medical professionals, engineers, and computer scientists. Obviously, being humanities scholars, we aren't interested in or able to help with the programming of the chatbot. Rather, the aim of our specific research project was to examine how the use of AI in this clinical role creates unique challenges in the, the development and appraisal of trust. Now, the first question you might ask is, why a chatbot? Well, the CAMH project is based on the idea that smokers are a hard-to-reach group that are often reluctant to seek addiction counseling. Further, resources for quitting smoking are often physically and financially inaccessible to a lot of people. This project actually sits within a broader trend of automating care to address high, pa high patient demand and low institutional resources for therapy and behavioral count coaching. Over the past decade and a half, we've seen the development of not only AI-driven chatbots, but apps, avatars, and interactive software platforms. Although substance abuse has been a particular focus, such technologies have been designed to help fight obesity, manage stress and anxiety, address women's health issues, and many, many other fields of medicine. Uh, to achieve the goal of smoking cessation with a chatbot, the CAMH team has borrowed heavily from the principles of motivational interviewing. Motivational interviewing is a client-centered style of psychotherapy that focuses on encouraging clients to voice their own motivations for behavioral change. It's based on four major skills, uh, open-ended questions, affirmations, reflection, reflections, and summaries. Um, this is really e most easily 
explained through an example. So this is a human to human example of motivational interviewing to help people quit smoking. Uh, the therapist would begin by asking what is bad about smoking and open a question. When they get a response, they would say, I understand engaging in a bit of reflective listening. They would give an affirmation saying, I appreciate you talking about cigarette cravings. And then at the end, and this is a big part of it, is a summary to sort of encourage the self-reflection on the part of the uh, patient. The CAMH project uh, attempts to create a distilled version of motivational interviewing by leveraging natural language processors or NLPs. So this is an example of a human to bot uh, transcript. Uh, so an NLP is an AI-driven system designed to process, analyze, and generate realistic speech. Um, they use a lot of things from personal assistance to uh, chatbots such as this, anything that tries to mimic human speech. Now, the iteration of the chatbot analyzed in this paper uses NLPs to inform the rules of the conversation and process user inputs. But once processed, it simply provided responses pre-written by the development team. As you can see, the chatbot here is enacting the procedural question and answer format of motivational interviewing, very similarly to a human being in that last example. As we move forward, I'm going to be providing a lot more nuanced and complicated transcripts. This is more of just a baseline. Now, the central concern we wanted to address uh, with this paper is trust. Trustworthiness is implicated in both the practice of motivational interviewing and the broader participation in the clinical institution of therapy. Uh, as a consequence, the recontextualization of the embodied experience of therapy into disembodied digital space raises a lot of questions regarding how we can develop and appraise trust in such a novel interaction. In pursuit of appraising trust, we first had to define trust, which is a, needless to say, a very large task. Uh, to simplify things, we engaged in a cross-disciplinary review of two composite taxonomies of trust. One focused on human-human interaction and one focused on human-machine interaction. The first taxonomy we referenced was by uh, McKnight and Shrivani. It's the human-human taxonomy. And it was published in 2001. It draws from about 65 definitions of trust through a qualitative literature review of the disciplines of psychology, sociology, economics, and political science to define trust in, and distrust in human relationships. It eventually settles on three key trust concepts. Uh, dispositional trust, which is a person's general propensity to trust others across various scenarios. Interpersonal trust, which refers to social factors that influence trust in a specific one-on-one -on -one basis. And institutional trust, which are uh, basically a belief that favorable conditions are in place, such as laws and social contracts that enable trust. Uh, the taxonomy that we compared it to, the human machine one, was published by Schaefer et al. in 2016. Uh, built on a prior 2011 study, and it aggregates many empirical studies within the fields of computer science and human-computer interaction to define factors affecting trust in human automation scenarios. Uh, it is as well distilled down to a three-part model, uh, focusing on human-related factors, which is the general propensity of an individual to be willing to depend on automation, partner-related factors, which refers to design affordances and capabilities that permit an individual to depend on a specific machine, and environment-related factors, which refer to an individual's belief that automation can enter an existing situation in a favorable way. Now, because both taxonomies used a three-factor model, we're able to match them up point by point to discern where there are moments of overlap and divergence and how trust is appraised 
between human-human and human-machine relationships. Uh, this is a very expansive comparison, but I'm going to try to distill it down as much as possible. I'll be touching on these comparisons throughout the rest of the presentation, so don't, don't worry that I'll be navigating away from this table. But, but basically, uh, we match dispositional trust and human-related factors as they both uh, share focus on things that predispose an individual toward an act of trusting. We matched interpersonal trust with partner-related factors, uh, as they both share a general focus on trust is how trust is influenced by characteristics and expectations of a partner over time. And we matched institutional trust and environmental-related factors, as they both share a focus on the context of the interaction beyond the task at hand. Um, building on these comparisons, we attempted to discern unique trust challenges the CAMOT HBOT uh, might face as it's enacting its uh, pursuit of smoking cessation. Now, these challenges are based on the notion that despite moments of overlap outlined in the previous table, the chatbot actually occupies a liminal space between the two taxonomies. It is an artificially intelligent uh, machine explicitly intended to substitute for a human being. Uh, as you can see from this slide, the four unique trust challenges we identified are predictability, knowledge, context, and experience. Now to find potential occurrences of these challenges, we engaged in transcript analysis of trial interactions of chatbots provided by, to us by uh, CAMH. Uh, the first thing we did was conduct a machine-aided analysis to find moments of conversational breakdown throughout about 110 transcripts. To just briefly explain, conversational breakdowns refer to instances where a failure in understanding user input stalls or impedes conversation with the chatbot and subsequently erodes trust and willingness to continue. After finding these breakdowns, we assessed whether or not one of the four trust challenges that we identified could be implicated. And we did this through uh, iterative processes of close reading. Uh, just to give you an, another example, I find these very helpful. This is a, an example of a very basic conversational breakdown. As you can see, the chatbot's natural language understanding fails to grapple with the more abstract, abstract idea that the smoking can be a peaceful thing. And as also seen, the conversational breakdown is attended to by machinic strategies of conversational repair. Uh, conversational repair refers to trial and error processes uh, enacted by the machine that allow an NLP-driven technology to recover from a breakdown. Uh, the CAMH chatbot, as you'll see in the subsequent transcript, uh, enacts conversational repair by apologizing and asking for clarification, does so in a very human mimicking way. Having established this methodology, the remainder of this first part of my presentation is going to be a review of these trust challenges one by one using examples from these early transcripts as a justification. Uh, just as a disclaimer, uh, because we're not able to verify with participants whether our coding is uh, accurate or amenable to what they think, we only pulled the strongest examples into this paper. And we're actually going to be conducting more quantitative research more in more controlled environments in the future to verify these results, which I'll touch on briefly uh, towards the end of part one. Now, the first unique trust challenge is predictability. Now, by predictability, we mean the ability of a human user to predict the response of a conversational agent. Uh, both taxonomies highlight the importance of reliable and predictable behavior in sustaining a one-on-one -on -one relationship. In the human-human literature, this is based on integrity or competency over time. In the human-machine 
literature, it's more tethered to like raw machinic ability, reliability. Uh, predictability is particularly relevant to the CAMH project because motivational interviewing relies on gradual non-disruptive change. The aim is always to pose open-ended questions that are evocative and encourage self-reflection and never to really ambush the patient with a dramatic revelation or force them and that's considered an overshooting. It's, it's not a good uh, best practice of motivational interviewing. Now, there are complications in applying either a human or machine-focused appraisal of predictability to the chatbot, owing to the variable degree of explicitness in conversational breakdowns. What do I mean by explicitness? Well, when many of the subtle errors performed by the chatbot resemble errors of expert knowledge, if a chatbot provides a slightly incorrect or obtuse response, this might be perceived as a frailty within the clinical approach rather, rather than the technology itself. Like, it's not simply a glitch. Seen here, the chatbot asks the patient to describe other things they like about smoking, but not only misinterprets the response, but relates it back to the category that it has just claimed to have moved past. This is a mistake a therapist could make because it's not egregiously out of place, it's really just in, inattentive in a lot of ways. As such, it more so reaffirms pre-existing doubts and anxieties about seeking therapy in the first place. However, uh, more explicit moments of unpredictability are often immediately attributed to technical shortcomings, uh, specifically by the patient. And this specific feedback comment uh, that was based on a really tumultuous transcript where there was a lot of different conversational breakdowns, the user frames unpredictable responses as mechanical issues that might be repaired. You can see at the beginning here, they say it's quite apparent I was chatting with a bot. And at the end, they say a lot of work is required, mechanical work. Now, because moments of unpredictability are often categorized by the user on an error by error basis, it complicates the chatbot's adherence to either of the two taxonomies of trust. Uh, the next challenge is knowledge. By knowledge, we mean clinical task-specific knowledge understood by the user is necessary for a successful interaction. Because the chatbot is substituting for a therapist, it becomes the gatekeeper of expert knowledge previously held by a specialist or an institution. Similar to predictability, knowledge intersects with both interpersonal trust and partner-related factors as both portray trust built on competency. Now, motivational interviewing as a well-documented clinical method is built on such competent enactment of its four core skills. The CAMH chatbot is hypothetically highly skilled in these procedures, specifically the question and answer part. Here we can see the chatbot succeeding at a similar identification to the one that had flubbed in the previous slide. It's able to identify that holding a cigarette is what this person is referring to uh, when, they say, when they say things like calming feelings and what they like to do with their idle hands. Uh, however, motivational interviewing and most forms of therapy can't simply be reduced to a bag of tricks. By definition, they require clinical intuition to navigate through the seemingly straightforward question and answer process. Uh, seen here, the bot fumbles identifying a very simple plain language answer owing to the informality in which it is phrased. And it actually incurs a direct challenge to the proficiency of the chatbot. Um, I'm not 100% sure what protobot means on the case of the user, but it doesn't sound good. It implies uh, sort of a primitiveness in the design. Now, what makes knowledge an interesting challenge is that the chatbot is generally procedurally impeccable enacting the steps of motivational interviewing beat by beat, but flubs a lot of experiential knowledge, which we'll touch on more later. 
the next challenge is context. Uh, by context, we mean the broad cultural, institutional, and material situatedness of the interaction. Uh, both of the taxonomies emphasize the importance of the context of an interaction. Individuals generally lean on formal structures such as laws and social arrangements when entering an unknown encounter with a human being or a machine. Uh, for example, uh, there's a general assumption that since I'm giving this presentation at a well-known Canadian university and that my knowledge has been verified through degrees at alike institutions, that the information I'm giving you is reasonably accurate. Uh, this type of thinking holds extremely true for medicine. Therapy as a whole has a very standardized institutional context that we rely heavily on. And it's one that the CAMH chatbot is completely removed from. Therapy sessions are completely removed from institutional cues, such as arriving at the clinic, signing in with a health card, and engaging with an expert face-to-face. -face. Similarly, any nonverbal or proxemic cues that might foster trust in a human-to-human -human context have also been erased. Uh, on one hand, this could inhibit a patient from developing institutional trust as a disembodied chatbot lacks the physical context to back up its authority as a therapist. On the other hand, there might actually be an advantage to the disembodied context of the chatbot. Patients may be more willing to be casual and candid. Uh, in this interaction, the patient is willing to disclose a lot of personal details, as you can see in the last line of the transcript, uh, likely owing to the fact that they're not in a uh, physical space in a face-to-face -face encounter, and there's not a lot of associated formalities. Uh, the team at CAMH often speaks to the potential advantage of what they refer to as the one-down position of the chatbot, which encourages disclosure by making the chatbot subordinate to the patient in some ways. Uh, as such, context becomes an interesting challenge as there might be detriments and benefits uh, for trust upon the removal of therapy from a physical space. Uh, now, the last challenge, as I've touched upon when I was talking about knowledge, is experience. By experience, we mean embodied experiences built through previous interactions with both conversational agents in the world. Uh, we delineated experience from knowledge on the basis that knowledge speaks more to, the, to clinical intelligence and experience speaks more to lived social intelligence. As noted in the knowledge section, motivational interviewing is notably grounded in accurate empathy, clinical intuition, and listening in addition to simple question and answer procedure. Uh, the entire McKnight and Shervani taxonomy is anchored by such experiential values, uh, specifically benevolence, reliability, and goodwill. Uh, Schaefer et al.'s taxonomy excludes these concepts, focusing more on design affordances that permit comfortable engagement. This creates an interesting tension with the CAMH chatbot, as it, alongside the majority of AI systems, lack a mechanism for uh, appraising emotional responses and, of course, lack genuine lived experience. Uh, in this example, a human being would generally recognize yellow fingers as as much a social issue as a medical issue. As people who live in a society and recognize smoking as uh, something we experience on a day-to-day basis, we recognize things like yellow fingers, uh, discolored teeth, uh, smell as equally incurring social stigmatization as being uh, indicators of health problems. And a human therapist would immediately recognize this. A bot, however, doesn't have that kind of experiential uh, knowledge. So they see yellow fingers, they link it to the body, and they link body to health. And it causes a breakdown here because the patient immediately calls out the therapist for not understanding what they were trying to say. Um, despite conversational breakdowns such as this, we have to consider how AI might feign lived experience in the future to earn trust. This may seem far-fetched, but popular nat natural language processors such as GPT-2 
are currently being trained on internet data, such as social media platforms, to understand how humans act and think. Subsequent versions of this very chatbot actually run on GPT-2, and we've seen attempts made at making these experiential connections and later transcripts. Unfortunately, I won't be able to cover them within the confines of this presentation. Now, where do we go with this? Well, as I mentioned before, we'd like to do more quantitative and rigorous research to test these trust challenges. So in the immediate future, we intend to continue by conducting a Wizard of Oz study alongside a set of semi-structured interviews to back up these challenges with more empirical data and to kind of just refine them a little bit more in the long run, we hope these challenges will aid in the development of a hybrid taxonomy of trust that accounts for instances where embodied human ability is transposed into disembodied digital space. Um, before moving on, I want to thank my co-authors, Olivia, Camille, and Matt, as we pulled a lot of long hours on this paper, especially the transcript analysis part. And I also want to remind everyone that to keep plugging away with questions. You can continue asking questions about part one as we move into part two. We'll be appraising them all at the end. Now, with that being said, I'm going to segue into part two of my presentation, manufacturing crisis. And I wanna begin this part of the presentation the same way that I began part one, by asking the question, why a chatbot? Well, the justification given by both CAMH and leaders of other similar projects within the field of care all follow a very similar thread. First, they pose that there is a crisis of both available labor and institutional resources within healthcare. Uh, there are too few therapists, too few nurses, and a deficit of funding to provide effective widespread aid. Uh, next, artificial intelligence is suggested as a solution to this crisis for being a resource efficient means of providing these source, uh, services. Tying this all together is the underlying assumption that machine learning can largely and effectively substitute for human knowledge and ability as technologies such as natural language processors exponentially increase in power in the coming years. Ah, finally, some pictures. Um, so the logic of new digital technologies being the solution for moments of crisis has been imported into the domain of robot caregivers, which is the focus of my own doctoral research. Robots that provide care for or monitor the elderly are moving from science fiction to reality in North America and globally as well. Uh, they serve as a major pillar of the long-term care industry in North America, already valued at over $7.6 trillion. And they're taking on a variety of roles. So here are a few examples um, that I'm most familiar with. So the one on the left there is named Robert. He's designed to lift patients out of bed and into wheelchairs, as well as help those who need assistance to stand up. Uh, the one on the right uh, is Pillow. It's described as a home health companion. It's equipped to dispense medication, order medication refills, and verbalize reminders to take dosages. And the one in the middle there, I think is defunct now. I think they've stopped producing it, but its name is Pepper. It's designed to take on more administrative diagnostic and wayfinding roles in hospitals. You might've actually seen that one. It's been involved in a few studies. Um, both at U of T and at Ryerson University, it's very uh, versatile in its capabilities. Now, the growth of this industry has accelerated in anticipation of a milestone date presented by the World Health Organization, uh, 2050. By 2050, the global population aged 60 years and older is expected to triple. This is af after already having it tripled once between the years of 1950 and 2000. As detailed in the WHO's World Health World Report on Aging and Health in 2015, 
This is owed to declining mortality rates and uh, net higher standards of living worldwide. In summary, for the first time in history, the majority of individuals on the planet can now expect to live into their 60s and beyond. However, these extra years of life, rather than a cause for celebration, are often posed as a prescient challenge. It is worried that an increasingly top-heavy population will put new demands on governments, health authorities, and also broader uh, social and familial structures. In Canada, the ongoing pandemic has highlighted how ill-prepared our nation's long-term care infrastructure is for uh, moments of upheaval. We saw the highest proportion of COVID-19-related deaths amongst those receiving long-term care globally, owing to overburdened staff, intensified privatization, and many, many other factors. Now, our newfound longevity as a consequence has been framed as a unpredictable challenge, an extraordinary change, and an unprecedented crisis. The 2050 demographic shift has thus become the 2050 demographic crisis, and this crisis is one in which technology is seen as the primary solution. Now, what my research does is ask the following question. How does this articulation of a 2050 demographic crisis we define the challenges of long-term care in a manner that advances automation and artificial intelligence-focused solutions. Uh, for one, I, I question how the crisis narrative influences public debate on issues such as labor, privacy, and privatization in long-term care. Second, I ask how design methodologies for caregiving technologies might be reappraised to recenter the agency of patients and essential workers within this crisis. Uh, the focus on robotics, uh, because that's where the bulk of my research background lies. I spent a good deal of my master's degree actually working with socially assistive robots designed to care for, play with, and study children with autism. But the ideas I'm going to present here are applicable for any type of autonomous system being used in the field of long-term care and the broader institution of medicine in a lot of ways. Uh, now, before I move anywhere forward, I also think it's important to state what my research is not about. Uh, one, it's not a broad criticism of capital. It's very easy to reach the thesis that robots are bad because they're made by big Silicon Valley companies which are embedded in capitalism and capitalism is bad. Capitalism is bad, but I consider such criticisms more of a beginning than an ending point to this sort of research. Uh, second, I'm not calling to ban these technologies, even though I'll be criticizing and scrutinizing and just sort of thinking about the design processes behind them. Well, I have qualms with technological technological deterministic thinking. I think it's kind of fruitless to hang on to an idealized pre-technological past that never really existed in the first place. And third, and I think this is the most important, I don't want to vilify the doctors and engineers tasked with developing these technologies of care. Uh, returning to the chatbot project at CAMH, these are individuals who have dedicated their lives to solving healthcare problems and assisting marginalized groups of people. And they're doing the best to solve these problems as they're presented to them with the resources that they've been provided. Now, just to get that out of the way, uh, what I'm really trying to do is unpack the trend toward automation that has defined the 2050 demographic crisis. Social studies scholar Sherry Turkle does a very good job of setting the tone for this in her 2012 book, Alone Together. She notes that arguments for replacing human caregivers with robots, or as she refers to them, caring machines, have frequently been put in terms of intractable quandaries. Governments, corporations, and health authorities alike provoke a single unifying question when considering the future of long-term care, which I presented right here. Do you want your parents and grandparents cared for by robots, or would you rather they not be cared for at all? This leads to my first research question. 
what socio-historical forces have led to the contemporary framing of aging as a problem to which automation is the inevitable solution? Uh, in short, have we wound up with Turkle, Stark, robots, or no one binary? Now, to answer this, I start by drawing on the concept of medicalization developed by sociologist Peter Conrad. Conrad describes medicalization as a process by which non-medical problems become defined and treated as medical problems. He notes that over the past century, a wide range of human problems have entered medical jurisdiction from aging, which I'm talking about right now, to the entire cycle of reproduction. Although this leads to a lot of new and helpful disciplines of medicine, it also transforms a lot of normal life events and human differences into pathologies, increasing the number of individuals who are considered objects of medical concern. In my own research, I connect the platforming of a 2050 demographic crisis to a broader pathologizing, problematizing, and even pandemicizing of aging over the past century. I then define how articulations of crisis, both within healthcare and broader political discourse, can foster top-down techno-solutionist thinking. Uh, I articulate this through a phenomenon I refer to as crisis automation that actually draws heavily upon Naomi Klein's conception of disaster capitalism, outlined in her book, The Shock Doc Doctrine, which I, I can't really recommend more. It's a great book. Klein specifically discusses how moments of national crisis can be exploited by governments to push uh, policy changes, heightened privatization, state surveillance, and many unprece unprecedented technological developments. She uses the example of homeland security in the United States and the large uh, complex that arose out of it from the 9-11 terrorist attacks. Uh, crisis automation similarly posted that when we are faced with an economic, demographic, or societal crisis, our first impulse is to excise the weak, the weak human element and replace it with a strong autonomous system. Uh, I hate to bring up COVID because I know we're all probably sick of thinking about it, but it gives a pretty good foothold for this research. Um, the response to the pandemic has been largely technological through innovations such as contact tracing apps. We've also seen a peripheral advancement of technology such as delivery robots and self-checkouts in grocery stores that are explicitly meant to protect human beings by replacing other human beings. Uh, case in point, these robot coffee shops have been popping up all over Toronto since COVID started, promising that you can get your coffee without having to worry about interacting with a human being and getting sick. Uh, I have qualms with this promise, partly because I think that touch screen is probably filthy, and partly because I've seen someone in the background of these coffee shops refilling milk and cream and doing other tasks that, a human, that the robot cannot yet do. But you get the basic idea. Uh, Trickle, again, provides a good through line for underscoring the idea of crisis automation. Drawing on philosopher Kwame Anthony Apaya, she notes that the 21st century has become the age of the package problem. Uh, what Apaya means by this is that we are constantly presented with problems that are bundled together with options. This is very evident in crisis narratives. In COVID, either we render ourselves super visible through tracing apps or become a super spreader. In the war on terror, as noted by Klein, uh, we either submit to uh, airport security or we submit to the peril of terrorism. And in the journey towards the 2050 demographic crisis, we either welcome the automaton into the nursing home or welcome no one at all. It's all in strict binaries. Uh, as emphasized by Apaya, this act of framing is itself an arbitrary moral task. There are a number of extremely valid questions in the domains of technology, labor, and policy we could be asking in regards to the 2050 demographic shift. 
but instead we have become hung up on the robots or no one binary in a lot of ways. Uh, through the imperatives of crisis automation, digital technologies such as robotics have come to define solutions in long-term care in North America, while human-focused alternatives have been often omitted. So sort of moving forward with this idea, the next step of my research involves developing lines of inquiry outside of the package problem. I begin by asking the following. How does the, oh, there's a tickle. How does the reconstruction of aging as a crisis subsequently reconstruct the agency of healthcare workers and patients within the context of long-term care? In doing so, I try to reintroduce the human element into both the question and the decision-making process of care. Uh, first, I want to attend to the agency of those providing care. I ask, how do the imperatives of crisis automation coalesce with longstanding issues of precarity amongst caregivers? And how does this render their vocation susceptible to technological replacement? Now, this has a lot of intersection with modern concerns of precarious labor and the gig economy. However, caregiving has a very specific history in North America that necessi necessitates a review of the evolution of the vocation and its associated technologies over the past century. Uh, one reality we have to confront is that these caregiving roles have been disproportionately filled by women, minority groups, and unpaid workers throughout history. And this leads to a lot of number, this leads to a number of uh, challenging questions when appraising the automation of these roles, such as to what extent does the historical devaluation of essential labor and those that perform it play in deciding which abilities are amenable to automation? How have science fiction imaginaries and Silicon Valley visionaries alike subsequently misjudged the physical and mental demands of labor? And how can forms of labor be both essential and replaceable in these ways? Now, these aren't simply philosophical questions. Uh, they actually can impede the design of the technology itself. Uh, the industrial ambition towards a workless future has often outpaced technological realities and robotics and artificial intelligence owing to such misjudgments. Recently, there has even been a reassertion of human skills to cover unattainable gaps in autonomous systems. Self-driving cars, which we thought we would have by now, have been curbed in favor of gig economy workers. Content moderation on Facebook has often been entrusted to call centers rather than algorithms. And delivery robots in North American college campuses are being teleoperated from South America because their pathfinding isn't where it's supposed to be right now. I think this is actually happening in Canada right now. So if you see a little robot puttering around on campus, it's probably being remote controlled from very, very far away. Uh, although this reassertion of the human element is often framed as a stopgap measure, it brings into question common assumptions regarding which embodied and intuitive skills can easily be subsumed by machine learning. This idea of artificial, artificial intelligence that I've only briefly touched on is actually a topic of a tentative workshop. Uh, Olivia and I just submitted to CHI 2022 on behalf of our working group at the Fluent Center. So I'd be happy to talk about that one more a little later as well. Anyway, again, I don't wanna flatly reject caregiving robots. I wouldn't be pitching a design focused workshop and inviting a lot of engineers and human computer interaction people if that were the case. Well, hopefully not. Uh, what I intend to do is interrogate how the replacement of essential workers with caregiving robots simultaneously satisfies demands of the 2050 demographic shift, as well as a century-spanning techno-liberal ambition of a workerless economy. And in recognizing this tension, uh, no, sorry, recognizing this tension exists influences how we appraise and design these technologies. Continuing this thread, I want to attend to the agency of those receiving care as well as those providing care. 
So the question to ask is, how does heightened automation within the long-term care sector provoke a renegotiation of patient independence and privacy? In the case of the CAMH chatbot presented earlier, we saw how the replacement of a human therapist with an AI-driven one raises a lot of new questions for the patient. You look at trust specifically, but there is a myriad of ways that automation affects those receiving care. For one, and even though I promised I wasn't going to dunk on capitalism at the beginning of this presentation, we do have to cap, uh, contextualize these technologies within our modern digital surveillance economy. There is already a widespread concern regarding data collection in medtech. Uh, Roberts and Hawkins note that wellness apps, wearable tech, and socially assistive robots all collect unprecedented amounts of highly sensitive user data in their day-to-day -day operation, ranging from someone's pharmaceutical schedule to their genetic data. And because crisis automation often provokes public-private partnerships or wholesale privatization, the laws and regulations that typically govern the collection and use of health data often do not apply to these medtech companies. Uh, as such, benevolent interactions, such as reminders to take medication, are simultaneously opportunities for insurers and Silicon Valley companies to extract data from and digitally, digitally profile users. You might recognize this guy from the earlier slide. Its name is Pillow. It is called a home health companion, and its main design uh, prerogative is to prompt individuals to take medication. As you can see, it dispenses it right into that little cup underneath it. Now, with a robot like this, there's obviously the broad concern laid out by Roberts and Hawkins that it might collect warehouse and commercialize data on behalf of its parent company. And it's true that in order to detect individuals and respond to voice prompts, Pillow has to be constantly engaged in the active surveillance. It's camera, microphone, and facial recognition algorithms, which are as contentious here as they are pretty much everywhere else right now, are always active regardless of whether it telegraphs wakefulness with lights on its face but also because this information isn't safeguarded in the same way as public health data might be, there are tangible concerns that it might be related to insurance companies that provide the robot, specifically in the United States. Uh, repeated failures to adhere to a medication schedule could subsequently result in increased insurance premiums or other hurdles when seeking healthcare coverage in the future. Uh, I know that sounds scary, but it's actually not science fiction. Like it sounds very speculative. Uh, but financial institutions such as banks have already leveraged internet-enabled digital platforms to algorithmically determine if individuals are creditworthy. So it's not that far-fetched to think that medical technologies might be leveraged in the same way. Uh, as such, in the context of surveillance capitalism, when we appraise these technologies, we need to consider how they change the broad socio-technical assemblage of care outside merely the enactment of care. The capacity of a robot caregiver to increase the independence of well-being of those receiving long-term care, which is tangible, has to be weighted against the potentially unprecedented degrees of governments and Foucauldian biopower these technologies exert over the elderly body. Uh, they are not simply a one-to-one -one replacement for a human caregiver. And owing to the black boxing of digital technology, and a lot of the question, and it leaves a lot of the more questionable and uh, problematic changes invisible to the person receiving care. Something else we have to keep in mind when we grapple with questions of patient agency is in long-term care is to avoid damage-centered research frameworks. As defined by Eve Tuck, a damage-centered research framework is one where research intends to document people's pain and brokenness to hold those in power account for their oppression. This often yields reparations or resources for marginalized com communities. Uh, Tuck specifically talks about indigenous communities and the way that they've been written about. And it borrows 
heavily from litigative discourses. However, Tuck considers damage-based approaches flawed as in order to justify reparations, researchers must ultimately paint the discussed group as defeated and broken. This framework is easily transposed onto my own research and a lot of research uh, considering old age, especially that that problematizes it. Those age 65 and older are often unanimously portrayed as lonely, bored, and idle, physically and mentally enfeebled, and resistance to change and unwilling to interact with high-tech products. As a consequence, technology is often hoisted on them, and they are removed from conversations regarding their own care. So how do we not only work through the problem of damage-based uh, research framework, but also our biases towards labor and the package problem of crisis? Those are, that's, a lot of, that's a lot to ask. Well, this is actually gonna be the question shaping the final more speculative stage of my research project. Specifically, how does one conceptualize caregiving technologies that both address the challenges of the 2050 demographic shift and center the agency of those providing and receiving care? Now, according to Tuck, we have to move past damage-based frameworks and towards desire-based frameworks. Uh, put very briefly, desire-based research is intent on depathologizing the experience of dispossessed and disenfranchised communities so that people are seen as more than broken and conquered. For here, depathologizing is an important word. As mentioned prior, through iterative processes of medicalization over the past century, aging has been pathologized and in the approach to the 2050 demographic shift, pandemicized in some ways. It is this pandemicization that has allowed the crisis narrative to be pushed to the forefront of the discussion with patient and caregiver agency being relegated to the background. Now, my own work advocates for practices and policies that look outside the rubric of crisis automation by empowering healthcare workers and patients to participate in the design process itself. I wanna do this by hosting workshops and open design sessions that include these two groups of people. Uh, again, these groups have often been sidelined in such design processes, workers owing to the historical devaluation of their skill sets and patients owing to the damage-centered thinking we've applied to them. Uh, there are actually already established design methodologies for engaging in this type of work. Uh, first, the principles of design justice advocated for by Sasha Costanza-Chalk. Their book of uh, the same name encourages design methodologies that center marginalized communities. Uh, it's actually codified in the Design Justice Network principles, which are available online, and I think are a very good read if you're interested in this type of stuff. Uh, and among other things, they see the designer as a facilitator more than an expert. Second, uh, the second methodology is critical making, which was actually originated by my supervisor, Matt Ratto. And I currently operate out of the critical making lab, which I would have streamed from, but I was worried about the campus internet connection. Uh, anyway, critical making similarly employs open design practices intended to provoke critical reflection. It leverages a lot of hands-on productive activities that bridge gaps between creative, physical, and conceptual explorations. Now, in engaging in this design work, I want to pay, place emphasis on the following goals. First, I want to position human caregivers as professionals who can enter equitable cybernetic relationships with technology. Rather than defaulting to the wholesale replacement of human workers, we can conceptualize technologies that center the agency and well-being and might even end up being more realistic, desirable, and efficient in the long run. Second, I want to enable patients to comprehend comprehend and negotiate the terms of their own care. Uh, we have to have conversations about how people want to be cared for and avoid succumbing to either the damage-based framework or the package problem of the robots or no one uh, binary. 
And third, uh, to repeat this again, as I've mentioned a couple of times, I want to engage in empathetic conversations with doctors and engineers and policymakers uh, tasked with providing this care. We can't allow them to become boogeymen. I mean, we often dunk on engineers and computer scientists, while many of them are working quite altruistically towards the same goals that we are. Now, cumulatively, in doing so, I intend to platform technological solutions to the challenges posed by the 2050 demographic shift that are not solely defined by the imperatives of crisis. So that's my basic research that I'll be undertaking as a doctoral student. Uh, I guess the last question is what's next? Well, now that COVID is hopefully maybe winding down, I'd really like to start making more connections with hospitals and healthcare networks in Toronto, Ontario and Canada as a whole, such as the UHN uh, network. Partnership with CAMH has been great, but I'd really like to get my hands on some physical industry standard caregiving robots, rather than just having to Google pictures and reports on them all the time. Uh, similarly, through my aforementioned working group at the McLuhan Center and my fellowship with the Ethics of AI Lab, which were kind enough to host me on this talk, I hope to foster a lot of interdepartmental and interdisciplinary connections in the study of AI and robotics. And I really feel like there's not enough cross-pollination between humanities and STEM people within this domain of research. And otherwise, I'm going to just keep hanging out with, the, with my, my robot friends in the Critical Making Lab and furthering my research on this topic. So at this point, uh, I am done talking. And I think Olivia is going to have some questions to ask me. So I will stop screen sharing. Thank you all for your time.